Hello, everyone, and welcome to Keep Crosby Out of My Mind. This is podcast 026, podcast 26, where we have a biblical conversation about the crazy world in which we live. Today's podcast has to do with a Christian's love for homosexuals and those struggling with same-sex temptation within the Christian church. So join us over the next 20 minutes or so as we provide you a bird's-eye view perspective of this complex issue confronting the church, our culture, and you as we apply God's Word to make sense of it all. And at the end of the podcast, we'll point you to additional resources just in case you'd like to dig a little bit deeper. In the meantime, let's get started. So Mark, I'd like to return to our discussion of homosexuality and the Christian in one final discussion. Yeah, you know, I think that'd probably be good. I think uh, with this whole topic of homosexuality, it is so complex. And and I think as Christians, a lot of times we want to make it this cut and dry um, homosexuality is bad, so this is how we respond. And I think it's true. We do know that homosexuality is a sin, um, but I don't think it's as easy as just homosexuality is a sin and it shouldn't be in the church and let's just get rid of it. No, you're right, Mark. Uh, you know, one of the things that the church doesn't do as well is minister to those who are in the church who have come out of the gay community or who are struggling with same-sex attraction or what I call same-sex temptation. And I'd like to think that most Christians who take the Bible seriously, which I suppose is the mark of a true believer, understand that being a practicing homosexual and a Christian are completely incompatible. A person can do all the interpretive gymnastics they want to, but you cannot get away from this conclusion using your Bible. Yeah, and I think that's that's a fair point. Um, and so really, I, I guess the question is, where does that take us today, and kind of how are we going to frame that up today? Well, here's what I'd like to do today. I'd like to ask and answer the following question. How do we love and cherish those who struggle with same-sex attraction inside our church family? I want to talk to a Christian's love for homosexual and others, as well as those struggling with same-sex temptation inside the church. So same-sex temptation, same-sex attraction, are those the same thing? They are the same thing. Same-sex attraction is the same thing as same-sex temptation. The reason I introduced this other terminology is a lot of people uh, get into uh, all kinds of semantic games, and I don't want to play those games. As Christians... We're good as a people at understanding why or how practicing homosexual is incompatible with the faith. We are not good at loving and cherishing and caring for those homosexuals who struggle with same-sex attraction, which is a temptation. They're wrestling with temptation. And so that's what I want to talk about today. Okay, so how does that work? How should we as Christians love them? What, uh, what role should they be playing inside of the church? How do Christians uh, deal with somebody who's stuck in same-sex attraction? Or well, there is a place for them in the church. I want us to be really careful. And so you know, you'll have people say, well, I'm a gay Christian and I want to serve in the church. What are they saying when they say that? And, and often it's that this is the way God made me. This is okay. Homosexual practice, homosexual same-sex temptation, same-sex attraction is wrong. Uh, and so therefore, first they have to recognize that it's wrong. They have to, you know, it, and that's how they became Christians. They repented of, of their old way, you know, and they became new creations in Christ by turning to him 
for healing, for forgiveness, for restoration. And as, as they do that, as they, turn, as they have turned to Christ, once saved, always saved, you're born again, you're a new creation, there is a place for you in the church. And that doesn't mean that your struggles are going to end all of a sudden. I have six friends or acquaintances who came to Christ and were delivered from the homosexual lifestyle. One is a pastor today in the South. Another is a retired educator. The third is a worship leader. Another is a pastor's wife. And another is a regular guy who attends church. And there are others I have known who, are, who play less visible roles in the church. But all of them were or are active in the church. And I'm not going to use their real names, but let's take Freddie. Freddie was molested by an adult as a child, and this led him into that world. Another gentleman, Marco, was seduced by a drama teacher in high school and then in college. David was a socially awkward young man who found acceptance in gay circles. Mavis was molested as a young woman. And Frank was molested by his uncle and cousins for several years. Then there's Betty, who had an abusive relationship in her marriage, and uh, she turned towards lesbianism, cut her hair short like a man's, dressed as a man, but showed up in church and was saved, and things changed when she came to Christ. Now, she chooses not to talk about her previous life, but by all appearances, she no longer struggles with same-sex attraction. By all appearances, that's the operative word. Back to Freddie. Freddie's different. Freddie is celibate. Upon coming to Christ and reading his Bible, he concluded, and rightly so, that homosexuality and all of its permutations was a sin against God. And understanding the character and nature of God, as well as the clear teaching of Scripture, he understood that that is no one's natural identity, that no one is a naturally a gay or a lesbian. That's a label they affix to themselves if that's what they choose to embrace. And so he chose not to embrace that label. Okay, so I think real quick, I think you touched on something uh, that's really important there, um, the fact that he he chose not to embrace that as his identity. With that said, um, I also think that it's important, and, and maybe you can uh, continue to clarify this, but uh, none of them anymore, now that they're Christians, identify with that lifestyle. They, they understand that these feelings are not how God intended them to be, and so they've, they've kind of stepped away from that identity, correct? That's right. You know, let's take Freddie as an example. He chooses not to identify as a homosexual. Uh, he puts it this way in terms of his inclinations because he still wrestles with these kinds of thoughts on occasion. But what he said to me is he goes, someone may make me angry and I may be inclined to lash out at them and I may have an anger problem, but that doesn't make me an angry person. That's not my identity. Anger is not my identity. Anger is a sin, and I can't blame God for this. We live in a fallen, broken world. In the same way, I may have had inclinations toward homosexual conduct, but that's not who I am or what I am. That's a sin issue. Now, of course, realizing this doesn't make it easy, and this is where our compassion and love for these folks and their struggles must enter into the equation. As Freddie tells it, he, no longer, he doesn't desire women. He has no attraction to women. But, but he says this, he also knows that God in his love and mercy would have him suppress his same-sex tendency as an act of worship. And he puts it this way, which may not sit well with some of our listeners. He says this, and he, and he points to 1 Peter 1.16, God wants me to be holy. Holy doesn't always mean life is happy in a worldly sense, but I do find contentment in Christ. And so Freddie differentiates between being content with what God has for him 
and the happiness that the world, that term the world uses. And so Freddie serves in a variety of capacities in the local church in Southern California, and now he actually lives in another state. And at the same time, he steers clear of any ministry that he perceives could lead to his stumbling or lead to temptation. Then there's Marco. Marco is a pastor. With salvation came freedom from same-sex attraction. When he came to Christ, in his case, different than Freddie's case, he was delivered. He's married with children, and I stay in touch with him, and he has no interest in the homosexual lifestyle, nor, and I believe him, does he suffer from temptation. Having said that, I find his situation to be somewhat exceptional, the exception as opposed to the rule. Often sexual brokenness is not unlike an addiction in that sex can be a powerful drug when abused, leading to a lifelong struggle. People often struggle with addiction their whole lives, or at least some form of temptation connected to the addiction. Marco doesn't. Freddie does. And the same is true of David. David is married with children. He's got several children. He is very effeminate. But David seems to be free from his old life. I met him in 1992. He's been married for years. Uh, he's, a, he's a worship leader. Uh, but then each person is different. We're all individuals. You just can't make sweeping generalizations about people. Mavis was molested as a young woman. She cut her hair short. She became somewhat mannish. But after salvation, she was discipled and mentored in the faith. And over time, she began to see beyond her hurts and her attractions. And she met and married. And uh, she uh, went back to school and got a master's degree in some theological area. And I believe that, that she is an exceptional case. So one of the things that kind of gives me pause here is a lot of these seem like anecdotal stories um, and really maybe not necessarily uh, generalizing the the holistic kind of view of this. You know, we talked about um, this, this sexual sin is similar to um, addiction, which we've covered previously. But, uh, but I just want to kind of be clear and make sure that you're not saying that these difficulties all end in these kind of like great ways where this person is free of the sin and they've, they got married and, and life is all good. Right. I don't want you to think that, um, the pie in the, these are just pie in the sky success stories. They're not. I mean, I think, I don't think Freddie would call his life and struggle a pie in the sky success story, but I understand what you're saying. These things are very, very complicated. And that's why I want to talk about Frank next. Now, Frank is a different story. He's got many scars. He struggles greatly. Uh, his struggles are many. He came to Christ and he intermittently struggles with loneliness. Uh, he, he was molested by his uncle and his, some of his cousins. Uh, he is uh, deaf. He has a huge speech impediment. He wears hearing aids, and his way forward is much more complicated. He can't speak clearly. Oddly enough, he can sing beautifully. Since I knew him and I, as I discipled him, he returned to his previous lifestyle a couple of times only to repent later when he came to his senses. But his struggle is loneliness because he has some visible disabilities and he found uh, acceptance or greater acceptance in the gay community. And out of loneliness and a desire for intimacy, he turned to other men for sex. He would tell you that it's wrong, but his life is really, really hard, and he has suffered great injustices at the hands of people who should have loved and cared for and nurtured him. So it's not all easy street. It's not all easy going. It's not all pie in the sky. But I guess what I am saying is where there is the supernatural God and a supernatural correction with Christ, there is hope. That comes back to the 2 Corinthians 5.17 thing about being a new creation 
or the Ezekiel 36, 26 heart transplant. Our heart of stone is removed and we're given a heart of flesh and God puts his spirit in us. But it is a hard way forward. So I don't want to give the impression that there are all, you get saved and everything just changes and everything's just easy. Okay, so maybe um, tie the string um, between kind of all of these events. So you've got um, people like Freddie and then you've got um, Mavis and you've got David. Uh, so what is what is the thing that uh, that all of these guys have in common? And, uh, and maybe you kind of tie it all together. Sure. Um, I'd like to say a couple of things. All of these folks have found spiritual healing in Christ, new life, new identity in Christ. Not all their stories are the same. Not all the outcomes are the same. And human beings in this life, in this fallen world, this side of eternity will remain a little bit broken, kind of like the internet is always a little bit broken. And beyond this, life and ministry are messy in a broken world. And we must look to God's word to make sense of our existence because these men and women reject homosexuality because homosexuality is rejected as an acceptable practice by God. Obviously, each and every one of these individuals have his or her own scars and struggles. They are all unique. No one case or situation or trial is identical, but God's word is sufficient. And according to God's word, there is a place for them in God's church. All right. Thanks for explaining that, Keith. So how does the church or any church uh, love and care for these individuals? Well, first and foremost, with patience. I will just tell you with Frank or with Freddie, uh, neither one of them is going to have an easy road. Each of them is going to have different trials and challenges. And uh, we're, we are to love them. No one is perfect or sinless, regardless of their background, or no one has it all down perfectly. Life is tough. Life is difficult, but difficult doesn't mean impossible. And so our calling as Christians is to love Christ people and to help them live for Christ. This is true of people saved out of homosexuality or transgendered ways of life. It's true of people saved out of addiction. There, this is in some sense true for all people. Even people who aren't saved, we are to show them patience, love, and care and know that the way forward is going to have stumbling blocks along the way. And so we are to befriend them, to encourage them, to support them. We are to love them, and we do not and are not to judge their past. If God has forgiven them their sins, then we have no call or case to criticize their past. If they stumble and we try to help them and catch them after they fall and they come to their senses, we are to not be cruel or judgmental. We're not to be turn a blind eye towards sin. We are to love them. Now, having said this, realize that such love can be tough at times. In my years of ministry, it's not unlike helping an addict. We humbly, gently, and kindly, and patiently do hold them accountable. And we give them a shoulder to cry on, and we mentor them. And if appropriate, we find someone to do it if we can't. Why? Because we are their friends and family as members of the body of Christ. That said, again, there is no cookie-cutter approach. Life and ministry are messy. But whatever we do, we do not allow them to carelessly put themselves or others at risk. That means we love them enough to challenge them, and we love them enough to encourage them, and as they grow, they will find their place in the church. God has given everyone who is saved gifts, and that gifting is intended to be put to work in the church. According to 1 Corinthians 12, 7, God you know, apportions them to everyone for the common good. And this includes these individuals as well. They have a role and a home in the church. Their new identity is in Christ, not past sins. And you see, there is a tendency in our culture to label. 
you know, hi, my name is so-and-so and I'm an alcoholic. That behavior is not who we are, but what we do or did. The same applies to people struggling with sexual sin, sexual temptation, including homosexuality. When we come to Christ, we are new creation with a new heart and a new nature, and yes, a new identity in Christ. Old things are passing away as we grow and serve him. All things are becoming new. We have a new heart. Spiritual growth is a process, not an event. It has its fits and starts. And so the church becomes the new family. The same is true of those saved out of homosexuality or out of drug addiction or any other Uh, besetting sin. The church must become their loving, patient, accepting, kind family. There's a place for them. You know, when we look into the Bible, one of the things I love about the Word of God compared to some of the pagan holy books is the Bible isn't filled with super women and super men. We see common human beings being used by an uncommon God. When you read the genealogy of Christ in the book of Matthew, you find Rahab's name there. She is one of three women included in the genealogy of Christ. Who was she? She was a non-Jewish prostitute who helped Joshua and Caleb and the spies during the Exodus. That's who she was, not who she is. She eventually, she converted. She trusted Yahweh. She put her faith in Yahweh. She put her faith in Christ. And so you find her in the genealogy of Christ. One of three women. Ruth's name is there. Bathsheba's name was there. Ruth was a Moabite. Bathsheba committed adultery with David. But, you know, God forgives and God puts us to work. Paul puts it this way in 1 Corinthians 6, 9 through 11. Or do you not know that the unrighteous will not inherit the kingdom of God? Do not be deceived. Neither the sexually immoral, nor idolaters, nor adulterers, nor men and women who pra- nor men who practice homosexuality, nor thieves, nor the greedy, nor drunkards, nor revilers, nor swindlers will inherit the kingdom of God. Look at verse 11. And such were some of you, but you were washed, you were sanctified, you were set apart, you were justified, you were saved in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ by the Spirit of our God. 1 Corinthians 6, 9 through 11. What's going on here? We're not identified by our problems. Our identity is in Christ. We were greedy. We were idolaters. Perhaps we were homosexuals or some other type of sexual immorality. Drunks. That's who we were. That's what we did. But then we became new creations. We were washed in the blood of Christ. We were sanctified, set apart to his service, justified, saved, born again. So we love these people for who they are now. Forgetting what lies behind as they and we press on to the upward call in Christ. And so, really, we would offer them the love, the support, the encouragement, um, and the acceptance of anybody that we would um, in the family of God. If, you know, somebody comes to the church and uh, they were a drug user or an addict, um, their, their treatment would be the same as a homosexual person or any of those other, any of our fellow believers, even if, you know, they're, you know, they're dealing with the grave sin of anger or pride, uh, like most of us, uh, it's really all sinful behavior. And we accept and we love that as a fellow believer. Right. We, just like God does, following his examples, we accept them when they turn from their sin and embrace Christ. Now, we also hold them accountable, just as we do other Christians. You sort of alluded to that. And along those lines, we protect them from putting themselves in harm's way, just as we do others. Hmm. Maybe uh, expand a little bit on how we would protect uh, protect someone. Well, let's flatten this out a little bit and take a half step back and kind of take the temperature down. Let's take an entirely different scenario. In two different churches where I ministered, we had people who were heterosexual people who were on the list of child predators. Now, they had repented of their sin. They had, they had paid their debt to society. They had become new creations in Christ. 
but we never let them serve in children's ministry or disciple youth. We alerted the elders, we alerted the staff, and we stipulated where they could and could not go for their own protection to avoid potential temptation or misunderstandings or allegations. We accepted and loved them as new creations, but we took precautions for everyone's sakes, theirs included. By way of analogy, you don't want to give a drunk a job at a liquor store or a bar. That's how we protect them. And so we want to protect somebody who has turned from homosexuality to Christ and come into the church family as a born-again believer from any potential, real, or imagined bigotry or allegation. At the end of the day, we want to love them well. We want to love the whole body of Christ well for the glory of God, the good of others, and and our own spiritual growth. And that's, that's what we have here. Those who have been saved from same-sex temptation or same-sex attraction, and we've welcomed them into the family of God. They have a place in the church. We love them. We care for them. We disciple them. We let them cry on our shoulder. We cry on their shoulder. They are our brothers and sisters in Christ. You know, Mark, I think we're out of time, so we'll stop there. That's it for today. If you'd like further resources, you can visit us online at www.gracetoliveradio.org and click the podcast resource button. If you'd like to ask me a question, you can email me at keith at hillside.org. And I'd love to hear from you. I try to answer emails within 24 hours. If you want to learn more about Hillside Church, you can go to www.hillside.org forward slash services and watch our services online or RSVP for a worship service in person. Before we go, if you're listening to uh, Spotify or Stitcher or Google Podcasts or Apple Podcasts, please give us a five-star rating. Recommend us to your friends so that we can reach more people with the message and hope of Jesus Christ. We release this podcast on Wednesdays, so we hope you'll join us next time. This is Keith Crosby with Mark Stickler, Out of My Mind. God bless you and keep you.